Have you personally flown into McCarran Airport and tried to summon a ride hail vehicle in their parking structure? I have. Did you enjoy that experience? Uh, I thought it was okay. Okay is not optimal. You know, it got me where I wanted to go. I thought it wasn't bad. It's a minor miracle that, they're, that they got away with it at all. I, mean, I thought it was the, like the, the opening scene 28 days later. Let's move along. We're here with Carl Yanni, oh, okay. one of the one of the good actors and quiet voices doing real work in the autonomous vehicle space, and a fan of Civilization too. Four. Apparently, no? huge fan. Thank said, you guys for having Sid me. Sid Meier games yeah. good, almost always. Did you play Gettysburg? Never, no. Sorry. Oh, that was a good game too. No, I missed that one. Mm. Do you? How much of your life's path forward did you think was inspired or guided by playing Civilization? Very little, but I think it's representative. I mean, I was a computer kid growing up. I mean, my first computer was the original Macintosh. So a little bit proud Lucky of that. Kid. Yeah, 128K um, memory expanded to 512. Those are the ones that are used as doorstops now, right? Collector's items. Oh, Those are very okay. valuable. Wow, Kirsten. No, no respect kidding. for history. Yeah. So a lot of game playing on the early generation PCs and not so much time in the last 20 years, but, you know, still here and there. I'd like to ask you a question that I asked another guest uh-huh. and he deflected. <laughs> this is Do you your... want to name that guest? No. <laughs> he, but you did just see him earlier. Okay. I've, okay. Got, a, I've got a clue. So yeah. someone at Morgan Stanley said that in the future, there will be only five car companies mm-hmm. and the Morgan Motor Car Company. Have you driven a Morgan? Never, no. They're terrible and uniquely delightful. I own one. It hasn't worked in years. They're death traps. They will live forever. Uh, but uh, it seems that the, the autonomous vehicle sector is coalescing around a handful of full-stack developers who have meaningful partnerships with OEMs. So recently, all right, so you have my Ursat's employer, mm-hmm. Argo, Ford VW. You've got Cruise with GM. Uh, Waymo is marinating with a couple of OEMs. We'll see. And then you came out of, I mean, really, really jumped out of the gate big time with a recent announcement with Hyundai. Mm-hmm. That would be four full stack developers in the United States lined up with OEMs in a meaningful way. Is that the future? Will the number of AV developers coalesce, align with the number, number of surviving OEMs? Well, I'll tell you what we found. So we have been, uh, you know, in the early days, independent as a startup. And then obviously with Inaptive, working as a part of a tier one supplier, um, you got to get your technology on a car. And uh, if we were having this conversation five years ago, no one would have thought that was a big deal, right? Because it was a software game. And the metal benders in Detroit were just stamping out widgets and they were replaceable. But it turns out that uh, the widgets are actually fairly complex and the metal bending is complicated. So I think as an industry, we realize that that integration of the software with a car is immensely complex. And it takes a very close relationship between the software developers and the hardware developers to get it right. So we had relationships that I would characterize as you know great relationships with OEM partners, but they were contractual relationships, arm's length relationships, whatever you want to call it, and um, productive. But when we thought about scaling, we thought about the future, we thought about building on next generations and next generations, You know, we became convinced that you have to have a very, very close partnership. And that can take a lot of form. Right, you can be a single entity, uh, vertically integrated with built capability in house. For us, the joint venture was the right structure to get that very, very close relationship. So we looked around the landscape, uh, talked to a number of people, 
you know, with Hyundai, we have a JV partner that ships about seven and a half million cars a year or so. Uh, they do just about better than anyone. Um, they, they focus on building cost-optimized cars. So when we think now in the future, beyond this first wave of deployments when there's real competition head-to-head, I want to be working on a platform that is low cost and have an advantage against my competitors. So, you know, for us, being able to work very, very closely with a partner became essential. Whether ultimately the number is five or seven or 12, you know, I'm not 100% sure. Um, but I don't well, think it's like any... You're like 80% sure. Um, I'm reasonably certain it's not going to be 20 um, but I can tell you that uh, I don't think it's any surprise. I think everybody in the industry has come to a same conclusion that I've just been expressing is that you have to have that very close relationship to really make it work. Can a company that does not have a real OEM partnership or JV, can they, no matter how much money they have, do enough R&D to generate real learnings without such a partnership? Well, uh, you know, never say never. I certainly think there are ways to uh, structure relationships in a way that you can be open and transparent and share enough and give enough and get enough, align your timetables, align your interests, so that when push comes to shove, you know, you're going to stay on schedule. Um, but I do think it's more difficult. I do think it's more difficult. The, the JV is actually, um, it's non-exclusive, right? I mean, it, it's operating independently. But uh, I was talking to the CEO of Aptive earlier today and Kevin. Yeah. Kevin Clark. Yep. Kevin Clark. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, they're on a first name basis, Mm -hmm. obviously, but um, we were talking about that and how's how it's structured. And um, I thought it was interesting that the way he laid it out. And I know that you're basically heading that up. So maybe you can talk about the business case a little bit, which is is that this is not non-exclusive and that really if, if, you were to choose, and correct me if I'm wrong, to not go with Aptiv's underlying architecture for the demonstration or vehicle that you're going to launch, mm-hmm. you, you're actually open to do that. You could theoretically like go with and by Bosch. You, you mean Hyundai here? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, under the JV. Under the JV. Yeah. So they've the given that free, freedom to do that. Right. Yeah, the JV is an independent business. Um, it's a standalone entity. It's going to have a new name and a new brand. Have you picked a name yet? We haven't. No. Mm-hmm. Will it be better than Newtonomy? Uh, it's going to be hard to beat Newtonomy, that, at least in my okay. heart. But Wait, uh, the music seems to be getting louder. Yeah. The more you talk about your, yourself, <laughs> <laughs> it's not coming from me. No, no, no. I think it's coming from the speakers this above. The, the party it's backdrop. The party, here. It's the party. Yeah, this is a Tonicast after dark. So you know, it's a little bit, a little Where bit more. We need to ease into the music. Where's yeah, that music yeah. coming from? What's that? And yes. will it remain? It's it's it's. We've taken care of it. I think. Yeah, it's it's been handled. They say AVs are right around the corner, but we can't control the hotel music uh, infotainment. Right. Please go on, Carl. Uh, So what were we talking about? The JV. So the JV is independent. The JV. But but you really have the. I want to know. Do you really have the freedom to sort of? Yeah. Look, I wouldn't say it's the freedom. It's the mandate. So it's an independent business. So now I'm back in, uh, you know, the shoes that kind of similar to where I was as a startup CEO running a business and trying to create value for all my stakeholders. Right. Um, and so what I need to do is go out and find the partners that can deliver from a supplier perspective, the best components with the best performance at the best price. 
from a partnership perspective, just the best partners who can help us get to market and win. And um, obviously, we have a preferred relationship with Aptiv and with Hyundai. There are 50-50 owners, but it's certainly not a requirement that we work with them. So, so what do you? What what makes a good uh, partnership between a stack developer and an OEM? Is it just the assets that like like okay so from the the developer perspective right is it are you just sort of saying who has the assets that you know i want my stuff in you mentioned you know cost optimization stuff or is there are there cultural factors that you look for that where you say you know this is i I have confidence that this is a relationship that we can make work yeah that's you know ultimately your interests have to be aligned so both sides have to want the same thing. And that may sound like an obvious thing. It's it's not so obvious when you get down to the details. You know, OEMs, um, as part of their base business, want to sell cars. They want to sell cars in large volumes. Where we are in the industry today, at least today, it's not about large volume. It will be in the future, but isn't today. Um, culturally, it's a great point. I mean, that's absolutely true, that you need to be able to work effectively with the partner. Um, because inevitably, despite best intentions, things will come up where interests, again, may be misaligned, and you'll have to figure out a way through. And so that's what I was kind of getting at before. You know, it, getting everything right on a contractual basis with a partner, no matter how much goodwill there is, and no matter how much you know energy there is on both sides, and both sides rooting for it to happen, often it's different businesses with different fundamental objectives. So you got to get that alignment. Do you? Do you? This is something we we discussed a little earlier. Have you watched the movie Ford versus Ferrari? I haven't seen it yet. Uh, okay. Is Alex in that movie? He he. No, but he will now market his own movie. Go ahead, Alex. Now is not this is the time for the yeah. shameless plug. All right. I mean, because the the story of, of Ford versus Ferrari, though, I mean, that is a case of a big industrial manufacturer, sort yeah. of at a time when they were sort of almost part of what was the tech sector almost of its time, right? The mm-hmm. auto industry, um, and they had to, you know, reach out to these plucky maverick West Coast misfits to accomplish something they wanted to accomplish. Uh, which was also something the Misfits wanted to accomplish. Uh, and, you know, they were very different cultures. And uh, as the movie shows, like, there were challenges in, in doing it. But ultimately, it was that, I think, that shared desire to accomplish the same thing. So, so who's a misfit in this story? Because Aptiv's pretty well-established business. Are you talking about, like, back in the new I'm, I'm It's sort of like, you know, startups in general are... I mean, mm-hmm. not that Aptiv is a, is a startup, but, I mean, I think the... You tend to think of software developers as kind of having a more freewheeling culture and a um, little different than a traditional industrial culture. Mm. Is, is that an issue? Or, or are the people who are working on both sides sort of coming from similar places? Well, again, objectives are aligned. Um, from a cultural perspective, I think it's actually really interesting. You've got, um, you've got in Hyundai, I would characterize a pretty traditional Korean company. I think they see an Aptiv, and I'm projecting now, this is my view. They see an, at, an Aptiv, um, a business that's focused on software development, at least in, in my business. Um, I think they see a lot of the startup elements, which we brought to Aptiv as part of the culture. And I think they, they see that as a positive. And so, um, you know, in the JV... That's the culture we're going to try to try to try to lean toward is a more entrepreneurial and startup culture. Um, but you know, going back to these partnerships, I think it's a natural evolution of just our, our mutual as a community understanding of this problem and its complexities. And I include myself in that. I mean, again, I started in the research domain um, in the startup world. I was, uh, you know, probably equally guilty thinking this was primarily a software problem. I had more, maybe more of an appreciation of the hardware side. I'm a mechanical engineer, so I know that stuff is hard. But thinking primarily, yeah, we got to get the software right. 
Um, and then we realized at some point this industrialization part, the integration part's really hard. It's one of the reasons that motivated us to join Aptiv. You know, when we thought about that stage, would we raise money, would we, would we join this other company? I thought, well, one of the things we don't know how to do very well is this integration, this validation, the industrialization. That's Aptiv's core business. So we said, well, join this. It's going to be great. That'll fill a real need in our in our, um, our knowledge base. And now you fast forward a couple more years with more knowledge under our belt and we're realizing even to a greater extent, boy, even within Aptiv, which is a tier one supplier for God's sake, they industrialize technology all day, but we don't build cars. And we actually believe now we need to have that deep partnership with a group that knows how to build cars at large scales. So hence the JV. Greetings, Atonicat Nation. Pardon the interruption. We know you're all anxious to hear the rest of the show, but we need a minute of your time. Actually, Kirsten, we need a few minutes. Okay, fine. Well, let's be clear. We don't need your time as much as your information. You might have heard that we have created a survey. Hold up. Let's provide some context here. What started as a fun side project has turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. And so it's time for us to grow up just a little. And to do that, we need to better understand our audience. We created a survey to do just that. The data fields are mostly optional, but the more you provide, the more you help. Importantly, we will never share your personal information with anyone. Filling out this survey is the most effective way to help us make this podcast everything it can be. So please take a few minutes to visit atonicast.com slash survey and help us understand who you are and how we can improve. Thanks. So uh, a question on the, the hardware side, although there is certainly a software, I was talking to another one of your counterparts yesterday, uh, Glenn DeVos, and we were talking about uh, something that um, Aptiv is actually unveiling to investors today, which is a smart vehicle architecture. Yeah. And it was interesting when he talked to me about that and, and how that emerged, but it was basically the integration issue that was happening Mm -hmm. in his view is that, uh, you cannot have a level four vehicle or even, um, a passenger vehicle on the road today. That's like, as you start to make those higher levels of automation without something changing in terms of the underlying architecture of the vehicle. So my understanding is that, that, that this smart vehicle architecture that Aptiv is doing will basically make it so that there no longer has to be these, um, siloed boxes, right. Where you're trying to wire everything together in this very complex environment and it's more streamlined and more efficient. So is that, is every automaker, that wants to have higher levels of automation going to have to do that? Are they hitting a barrier? And what prompted you guys to even do this? Yeah. So have you seen a wiring harness for a modern yeah, actually. vehicle? So, so I saw the wiring harness that I think actually Optiv does for the autonomous okay. vehicle for a GM oh, you in did. the Orient. Yeah. I saw them and putting it in. And that would be one of the more complex yeah, harnesses it's you're going to see. It, take, takes like, it takes like six people to put it in. Yeah, it's, 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 it's insane. It's incredibly complex. And this is only the beginning, right? So the complexity of the harness, the interconnects, obviously what we're talking about, you know, power requirements, redundancy on these systems now that are driven by autonomous. Um, it's created just this massive explosion of complexity on all these systems. And you look at this thing, this harness, and I mean, we tear down our cars just like I'm sure you do at Argo and build them back up. So you see these harnesses, you're adding to it, adding to it. You're running out of physical space to add more copper. I mean, there's just no more room in the car. 
So you get to a point where you break the architecture. And so Aptiv, and this isn't my business now, this is part of another part of Aptiv, but um, I think they're really smart in, in focusing on this as an opportunity and saying, look, if we don't fundamentally re-architect, we're not going to be able to extend to more and more sensors and deliver more content. It's just not going to happen. And so that's what this smart vehicle architecture is all about. It's kind of a radical simplification of the underlying architecture so that you can keep building. Right. And so my question is, will every automaker kind of have to go this route, whether or not they do it with Aptiv, but this simplification, and if they don't, what is going to happen? Yeah, look, I think they will. I think they will to be able to deliver um, uh, systems with increasing sensor count and increasingly complex compute in a way that's redundant and reliable. I think you're going to need to re-architect. And, um, you know, Aptiv will be one of the leaders in that. There will be others participating as well. It won't be only Aptiv. But Aptiv's off to a head start, I would say. Go ahead. I mean, as you're doing this kind of development work, I mean, how important, and you mentioned, you talked earlier in the context of this relationship about um, sharing goals, right? How far do you have to get along in the, like, knowing what business you're going to be in uh, ultimately, uh, to do the development work, right? Because every vehicle is a tool for a purpose and, mm-hmm. and an, a, an autonomous vehicle could do long haul trucking. It could do local delivery. It could be a robo taxi. Yeah. It could do a lot of different things. Right. Well, but it can only do one thing. I mean, it's a product at the end of the day and every product is different. And even if there's a little nuance between the products, a little bit of daylight, it's a different product, which requires different product development, different testing strategies, uh, just a completely different development strategy. So, you know, it's true. The, the, the core technology can apply to many use cases, uh, which I think is great. I think about um, that as a uh, great source of future value creation. In 10 years' time in the JV, we may be powering a fleet of robotic excavators, for example. I hope there's not any investors listening, so don't quote me on that. The core technology can do that, but to develop a product, you have to have a focus on a particular product and then go do it. Um, from start to finish. So you can't do anything halfway. I wouldn't go out and say, yeah, we're going to move people around, but uh, sometimes we might deliver a few packages because it's just not going to work. I mean, that use case is fundamentally different. Now, is there a potential product strategy, meaning the whole holistic thing where you've got a platform and you've got the use case, a multi-use case example, and you engineer to that? I think almost certainly, yeah. Almost modular approach. But I don't think you can move people on weekdays and packages on the weekend with the same platform if you have not specifically designed the system to do that. So I think, you know, again, it traces back a little bit to the R&D roots of this technology. Everyone in the industry knows that the technology uh, in a fundamental basis spans across multiple use cases. But now, as an industry, we're moving a little bit from technology development and R&D to product development. Product development is a different thing. It's not just the technology. It's the use case, you know, arguably more so than the tech. You assume the tech. If we don't get the tech right, I mean, what are we all doing here, right? So you assume the tech to a certain degree, and then you got to develop a product that really works. So have you identified what that product is going to be for the JV then? Maybe oh, yeah. What? Okay. yeah. So no change in strategy from what we're doing in Aptive. Okay. Moving people. You know, we're going to have a RoboTaxi product, which is so an offering. So next year, we're is, not going to see, like, the announcement that you're also going to do exactly what you said you weren't going to do, which is, like, oh. deliver packages Well, I would say if you do, it'll be because we've got a product team stood up. We've got a whole vertical set up there. We've got a group of really smart people focused on building that thing and not kind of cribbing from the other side. You know, they're going off and they're developing a technology stack, which will be independent. And at the end of the day, probably branched pretty far 
from the other stack to do that particular task. So, so when you start getting from research to product development, um, you may, you, you, you know, I think we've, everyone's thought about autonomous driving as the fundamental challenge, which is teaching a car how to, or, you know, building a, a driver for the car, right? Um, but a driver does more than drive. And I think one of the interesting things I experienced in, in um, when I had a driver's ride in Waymo and I was talking to some of their user experience researchers is like, they're like, yeah, I mean, the, the flexibility that a human has to deal with a customer um, is really hard, just as it's really hard to teach a car to deal with the, the you know, uh, kind of unbounded complexity of, of the road. So, I mean, is that something that, that, you know, you guys are doing together? Is that something that your part of the JV is doing? Sort of how, how far, you know, how, how's that informing this, this collaboration? Yeah, so, again, the JV hasn't closed yet, so we're not doing anything yet. But um, in terms of technology development, uh, that'll be, I guess one way to put it is, uh, the team here at Aptive, the group I'm leading at Aptive today, you know, those people are to be contributed into the JV. And on the Hyundai side, there's a few people. It's a small headcount, but it's primarily the vehicle engineering and cash. So we can say that the folks who are working on this stuff at Aptive today will continue doing that at the JV. And we've got a product team, actually a really great team at Aptive that thinks about exactly this, this question. And it's a really, really hard one. I mean, we, we, you know, we can find a million examples of reasons you would interact with a driver that are outside just telling that individual where you want to go, right? And um, that user experience question is exactly what we're talking about a moment ago, developing a product that works. From a technical perspective, from a safety perspective, sure, it's going to get you from A to B. It's going to be safe. Hopefully, it's going to be comfortable. But if you needed to, uh, you know, stop the ride because you forgot your purse, if you wanted the car to move up a few feet because it stopped in a puddle, there's a bunch of reasons why you could have a terrible experience. And it all speaks to the product development. So testing, I mean, it's one of those things that's going to be an exhaustive testing process. Um, again, it's something we've already started focusing on, but it's a huge, huge problem. Are, are you learning specific things from, from the Lyft partnership yeah. you have here in, in, yeah. in Las Vegas? And that's one of the reasons you we do learned it. You that, learned that flying taxis are unwise? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Hyundai's got a big bet on flying taxis. I think, yeah, uh, we saw as that. As I said. <laughs> we're, we're talking about the Lyft partnership BMWs here in, in, in Las Vegas, though. Yeah, so we that? have a uh, we've got a partnership with Lyft here in Vegas. We've got a big um, facility here in Vegas, 120,000 square feet, um, 85,000 square feet of garage space. We've got about 75 cars. So we've been partnered with Lyft for about a year and a half, um, picking people up, dropping them off, members of the public. So anyone can go ride in our car, even a competitor. You know, that's all right. Uh, our star rating right now, 4.96 out of 5. Very, very proud of that. 98% five-star ratings. But look, I'll be honest with you. I think partly it's because we have great vehicle operators in the car. At the moment, they can explain a lot about what's happening from a technical perspective. They can answer questions. Um, they can do a lot of the things that a driver does today. Now, They're also a lot nicer than the other Lyft vehicles. Oh, really? If you don't <laughs> select the self-driving option. You don't get a BMW 540? Yeah, mm -hmm. black with red wheels okay. and a cool, a very nice aptive font on the side. It is a nice car. So don't you think yeah. that's a little bit of an unfair comparison? Actually, some of the reviews we get that are not five-star ratings um, complain about not enough elbow room in the backseat of the 5 Series hmm. and not enough room in the trunk yes, for the luggage. because of the I guess you have extra, you have hardware back, a lot of hardware. Very little, very little. It's not a huge trunk though uh, right. in the 5 Series. But 
again, speaks to product, right? You can have a great car, you can have great technology, and people may complain about other aspects. Look, it all, it all counts. If they don't have a good experience, they don't have a good experience. Um, but so we do learn a lot today, even having a vehicle operator in the car, about what people are looking for, what they like, what they don't like, when they get nervous, when they feel comfortable. The next evolution of that is driverless testing, and that's what we're working toward. When do you think you'll get there in terms of the driverless testing? So 2020 for us, initial driverless testing, um, it'll be in an ODD that's not you know, midtown Manhattan at rush hour. Uh, but that ODD, which starts fairly restricted, it expands over time. Uh, 2022 is when we're picking up and dropping off people in a, let's say, a viable mobility service. So helping them get to work, helping them go to the grocery store, et cetera. And then 2025 is what we've talked about as a business uh, to be generating meaningful revenue. From operating like a robo-taxi yeah, service? Exactly. Or would That's you right. have a partner with that? Would you have... Lyft, which has the network as a partner, would yeah. Aptive handle all aspects So we're of not going to build our own network. I mean, that's um, capital intensive. It's hard. It's a very different business, very competitive. And there's great, there's great uh, companies out there who have established great brands. And we have partnerships with some of them already. So our strategy is not to build that. We're going to partner on that side. We're going to build um, what we think we know how to do very well, which is the software, the vehicle, and what we call the command center, which is a cloud-based connectivity of all the vehicles so you can understand what's happening with your fleet. I'm sorry to bring this up, but I saw a few days ago an announcement that you're expanding your Vegas geofence to include the airport. Yeah, that's right. Have you yeah. personally flown into McCarran Airport and tried to summon a ride-hail vehicle in their parking structure? I have. I probably did it last about a year ago. A year ago? Yeah. Did you enjoy that experience? Uh, I thought it was okay. I thought it was okay. What did you think? Op but that's not optimal. Okay is not optimal. You know, it got me where I wanted to go. I thought it wasn't bad. It's a minor miracle I, that, they're, that they got away with it at all. I, mean, I thought it was the, like the, the opening scene in 28 Days Later. I thought it was the, a horrible experience. <laughs> Is that because you had to walk to the central parking? No, they were as bad as trying to get a get in Tel Aviv? Well, get in Tel Aviv, at least it's, it's like a nice warm environment. There's people around, there's food. I, there must have been hundreds of people fighting and clamoring to like these barrier, these barrier walls. Mm -hmm. and then you have like 10 lanes. You mean to tell me that your vehicles are going to enter that structure and do pickups and drop-offs, or are you going to have a dedicated yeah. AV so, location? So here's what I'll tell you. So airports are very important because that's where a ton of demand is located for ride hail. A massive you know, fraction of ride-hailing demand either originates or terminates at an airport. So you've got to be able to service airports. Airports are also very complex. From an airport perspective, airports across the country are dealing with congestion in part due to people using ride hail. So you got to solve this use case, both from a technical perspective and from a partnership perspective. So what we did with McCarran is we went to them and we said, look, here's the problem. You know, we want to pick up and drop off at the airport. Some parts of it are hard and complicated. And from your perspective, those are also the parts where you don't want to add congestion. So the answer from our perspective was to find a dedicated area where we can operate. We can, we can viably operate there. We can drive there. We can park. We can pick up. We can go off on our way. From their perspective, it's a solution in part to their congestion. So we are 
you know, just starting to learn about this airport use case, to me, it's potentially scalable. You know, you don't always have to solve the very hardest technical challenge. This is not a macho thing or anything like that. You don't get extra points for that. You get points for picking people up and then dropping them off. And so however we can make that work, and if we can make our partner happy, you know, that's just a double win. But, but as a counterpoint, I mean, I'm pretty sure you guys are the first AV company picking up and dropping off at airports. As far as I know, for yes. what it's worth. Yeah. Yeah. No, as, far as, as far as I know, that's the case. You were amazingly modest about that. Well, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that's the case. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. don't know of any. You got to ask I, Miranda. We're pretty sure about that. I right? know some, some pretty like, you know, powerful companies in the AV space who yeah. specifically aren't doing that yet. Yeah. Now, every <laughs> airport's different too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some, because I know like at Portland where I live, it was completely like Lord of the Flies, you know, the, the ride hailing area. And then they instituted the line, you know, mm-hmm. and the queuing system and stuff like that. So I think it's you mean basically they, like well, a taxi well, line. Well, keep in mind that McCarran Airport is one of the. F- there are not many major urban target markets in this country where the airport is accessible from the, without going on a highway. The only other <laughs> the only other airport I can think of off the top of my head is San Diego. You could go right into downtown from the airport. And well, we go on highway there. to the airport. Oh, really? Yeah. Here. Uh, here we can. Yeah, we do. Yeah, but you can, also can take surface roads. You're right. And when you go on the highway, what is the max speed of the vehicle? Uh, highway speeds? Is this a trick question? I think uh, 65. I don't, I don't know the local... Uh, under here. autonomous control. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So back in the day, you know, Aptiv previously, this is before I joined, so this is a little bit of a history lesson. 2015, it was a 3,400-mile coast-to-coast drive from San Francisco to, to, uh, Delphi, to New York back right? in the Delphi yeah. days. And so they actually started from a highway use case and came to Urban. Uh, we, when it was a startup in autonomy, we started from urban. And so you're combining all these things and you get this nice com- combined capability. So I think in a, a minute or two, just because there are some people here, uh, we might allow some folks to, to join in just for the last like five or 10 minutes, if you're okay with that. Uh, Have you checked to see Depends Carl, on the folks. I mean, no. Some of those folks. I don't know. Questionable. Um, but before we get there, um, when I first started talking to you, it was back when it was just Newtonomy. And, and really, you're one of the first companies to have a pilot. Yeah, that's all. right. Like, yeah. I think, we, you know. We are actually, I don't know if you know this, we're in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the first open to the public robo-taxi pilot. No and that was like 2015? I, I, someone actually told, I didn't know that was going to happen. And that's in and Singapore? And someone sent us a clip of the Guinness yeah, Book of Singapore. World Records. That was in Singapore in 2015. 16? 15 or 16. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So is that still... Which was 23 years ago, but only <laughs> yeah. somehow feels like yesterday. Um, <laughs> is that still operating? Do you still have that pilot the public pilot? No. No. All of our focus here is on Vegas. Okay. So in Vegas, we've got the facility, we've got the scale, we've got kind of all the ingredients. It's an intense operational activity, as, as, as you know, Alex. You know, we run 20 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, it's a big effort. It's a big investment. But we're doing it because we're learning a lot on the, the product side. And so we've really focused on Vegas. Have you ever actually been a safety driver yourself? Oh, man, in the early days, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been behind the wheel. In Singapore? In Singapore. Well, Singapore, they do something strange. They drive on the wrong side of the road. And so I never trusted myself to do that. So the answer is no, not in Singapore. But Have you in- done it in Vegas? In Vegas, no. So no. where did you do it? Boston? Because you're all so testing would have been in Boston. Boston yeah. yeah. Uh, probably also in Michigan at one point. And that's confidential. Did you enjoy it? 
No, I found it stressful and difficult. Yeah, me too. I, I went yeah. through it at Argo, and yeah. I was terrified. So we, I mean, we, we spend a ton of effort and energy on the safety driver vehicle operator training. I mean, we had six weeks before our VOs even get behind the wheel. So they're doing all kinds of things, um, back seat and then right seat observation. We actually are vetting them before we, before we start interviewing them. We have a third party who looks at candidates and kind of does a sieve. Uh, it's a really important job. I mean, you'd think it'd be kind of easy because they don't have to do anything. The car's doing most of the driving. But, oh, no, it's work. But it's the, also the paradox of automation. You know, the better the technology gets, the harder it is to remain attentive. And so it's, it's just really hard. Do you use driver monitoring? We do, yeah, for different, in different reasons, yeah. Do would you like to share with us who's? Uh, no, I wouldn't like to share that part, but we so do. We like the technology. A, so safety is a competitive advantage. Well, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, look, one of the things we did in the past year, we, we got together with 11 other organizations, Intel, BMW, Baidu, Audi. We released a white paper. It was about 150-odd pages. It was a dense technical document. It wasn't a marketing document. I read more than the executive summary. You did. Well, good. It was a great sleep aid as well. And it was about building a blueprint for safe automated vehicles. So I think it's actually the opposite of a competitive advantage. You know, as we've seen in the industry, accidents impact everybody, independent of who had the accident. I mean, the day after the Uber accident, I was sitting at home on my couch. I got a phone call from a reporter who asked, you know, will your software have these same issues? And my first instinct was, well, you know, this wasn't our software. We're a different company with different software. But... It was actually a very reasonable question. It's still an autonomous vehicle. Are they all susceptible to some common mode failure that we, the public, should be aware of? So safety, you know, we're collaborative. We made that white paper public. I'm happy to send it to you. It's really good reading. Oh, I've seen it. <laughs> what, what was that? What are those conversations like when you join a, a coalition like that of, of people who are, you know, your competitors, frankly? Like, and it is a, you know, there are shared interests, I guess. But, like, yeah. how do you identify where those shared interests start and begin? That's kind of one of the reasons we've, we've got kind of a group format yeah. here is, is yeah. we'd like to see some of that, you know, the industry kind of share. Like, what, what do we have yeah. in common? Where, do we, where does that cooperation stop? Look, it's in certain areas, I think, if we're being honest. Safety is a great area, though. Safety is one where I think many in the industry would say, by sharing, it's a net mutual benefit, kind of full stop. I mean, we've also done sharing of data sets. We released a data set called New Scenes, which was a bunch, bunch of annotated... That was a nice website there, Carl. Oh, you like the oh, website? Yeah. yeah, we spent time on that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, here's the thing I liked about that. We released this data set, which we put together at our expense. And, you know, again, this is, I would say, the academic in me, having seen examples where you release a data set, people go off and do great things with it, and then release their techniques back into the industry. And you get better because of that. Um, a few weeks after that... Uh, or within a few months, I should say, a number of other players in the space had released their own data sets. So now we're competing I wonder on who giving they away were. data. Yeah, there were a few. You might have heard of some of them. One with the initials AA. And it was great. Well, and were honestly, you guys the first ones to release that was the data great. set? Um, I think you might have been. I think we may have that. been. I think we were. Well, I just yeah. want to say that there were other companies already working on such things <laughs> when New Scenes, which was a very nice example of this yeah. done right, came out. But there were also some other, other. companies who yeah. rushed out some stuff definitely, with some press releases. And if only we had more journalists who could discern the difference. Uh-huh. Interesting. But I think Why it, look, are you looking it's, at me? It's because you did a good job. <laughs> you mean by not covering some of the other companies? I'm just saying. Okay. The more education there is of the public and also the media about how these things work, the better. Are we going to see more data sets come out, you think? Is that, is that something that, was that just a, a one-time phenomenon or is this going to be a rolling thing you think the industry is going to do regularly? 
Uh, so we already released NewScenes 2.0. Yeah. So it's the second iteration of this this data set. It's got uh, kind of different and richer in some sense data sources. Um, so look, it's something that for us I thought was a great success. And um, again, from an industry perspective, I think we hit a spot and others agree that this is an area where it's not so competitive that we shouldn't be sharing. I think also, as you look across the industry, there's a lot of people with that similar ethos that I think maybe comes in part from ac the academic world. You know, you look at Brian um, at Argo, Brian Selesky, who was at Carnegie Mellon for a long time, and I think Pete Rander was there too. Um, he likes you too, Carl. Chris, he's a good guy. <laughs> Chris, obviously, Carnegie Mellon. And so, um, like, we've seen examples where by being a little bit open, you can reap a benefit. And sure, it's a mutual benefit, but it's lifting the industry in an area that's just critically important to everybody. Well, you know the story of what Robert Oppenheimer said after World War II? He wished that, that all nations would share nuclear secrets, mm -hmm. you know, for the, the atomic energy would, or atomic energy would be used for the good of all mankind. Uh -huh. He was laughed out of his career and okay. died unhappily. Well, but that was one potential future for atomic energy, which was not to be. What, what was the coolest thing that you saw done with new scenes? Right? Well, there's been a lot of papers published. I mean, what that was, gets me excited. What was your excited. favorite? Shout, shout someone out. What, what did you? What were you like? What was the thing that you saw someone do with new scenes that you were like, yeah, that was the right thing. Like, this is cool. I mean, it's all fairly intense academic kind of published Just work. Shout them out. Maybe they listen to the show. You really put me on the spot here. I know, I did. I'm I don't sorry. know if I, I can I there. I'd like to put we you will, on the spot. There were so many. We there were, there were just so we many. We will expect you to like follow up by email. I'm going to put you on the spot like, so hard, harshly now. I wanna, no, I, just, no, no, no. I think it's cool to encourage people to, to release more stuff. Well, let's read yeah. from his Wikipedia page and ask him a question of what one of this, these things All means. All right, let's do it. According to this, in the short fiction section of your Wikipedia page, Yanyema has published a collection of short stories called On the Nature of Human romantic interaction in yeah, 2003 I, think that was 2000, I was going to say 2001 okay. 2003 which features many stories about the more human aspects of scientists and mathematicians mm. where the protagonists are trapped between decisions of the heart and the rational way that book is still available on Amazon if you guys are tempted by that description so I'm the only one and sitting here right now who's ha doesn't ha isn't an author Okay, you have so a book? You, could you, you? I, I'd like is that, a, you're, you're is that to go. an accurate description of the book? And I mean, it would seem that at, prior to founding Newtonomy, you were thinking about the types of decisions that builders, inventors have to make mm. between what reason and unreason. Uh, well, I mean, I guess so. I thought I was going to be a writer when I grew up. That's kind of what it boils down to. So. Uh, I was writing that book when I was a graduate student. And so the title is actually supposed to be a bit of a play on words for a bit of a um, kind of a pompous PhD thesis title, you know, on this, on that. Uh, but it was a collection of short stories. It was literary fiction. It wasn't science fiction. Uh, it did not sell up to my publisher's expectations. Mm -hmm. They had high, t high hopes for the book. But for some reason, short stories about scientists just was not on everybody's Christmas so weird. list. For, for gifting. I don't get it. Are you a fan of Italo Calvino? Uh, I have read one of his stories. It was, what is it? If on a Winter's Night, the night Traveler. Drive. Isn't that the classic? That's one. The, the Night one Driver? One of the classics. I, don't, I haven't read that one. That's a good one. Yeah. But that's for another yeah. episode. Yeah. We should so I thought, you know, I wrote that book, and um, I wrote a book after that, a novel, uh, that came out in 2007. And so it took me four years to write that novel, and the advance I got to write that book divided by four, I concluded, was not enough to actually support a family. And that's The Expeditions? The Expeditions, yeah. And which is 
the story of an estranged father and his son's voyage mm. throughout the wilderness, wilderness, 19th century Michigan. Is mm-hmm. that a family story? 1946, I think that was, yeah. Is that yeah. based on some family, a family story of your own? Uh, I have a lot of interest in history, Michigan history. Uh, again, there was a scientific angle there. It was a scientific expedition. This was when Michigan was kind of the frontier. I know all your listeners are fascinated by this, by the way. No, so they it are. Was, uh, it was an expedition to northern Michigan in the 19th century to explore the frontier. Um, and it was a great, it was a great experience. I will tell you, writing a novel is harder than writing a PhD thesis. I will tell you that with absolute certainty. Um, it's so hard that I never wrote another one. <laughs> well, we're going to not let Alex read off your Wikipedia page anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just picking on you. We learned a lot about him in the no, last five minutes. It is. We have, we have. Um, but, uh, I think that since Carmera is helping us host the party, I want to give the mic to Ro uh, Gupta, who's with Carmera. Okay. See if he. Well, what's what's your well, burning yeah, question? Yeah, I actually just uh, uh, the the two questions ago. I, I was curious to ask a follow up. Um, I feel like you were you were alluding to, especially. I feel like last year, 2019, was kind of the year of safety. <laughs> to oversimplify, a lot of papers. Coalitions, you know, AVS symposium, all the keynotes, safety, 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 which is great. And I think to your point, most people would say we're not out to compete on safety. If anything, we want to collaborate so that, you know, everyone uh, ends up better. However, I'm very curious in your case, you guys are pretty unique because you're part of a tier one uh, now, unlike really anyone, anyone else in, in your peer set. And in our experience, you know, we we're also asked to track the different standards, UL, ISO standards, SOTIF, et cetera, as a mapping company. Um, and one of the one of the things we've heard from certain tier ones is even if they won't say we're trying to compete on safety, they do think that being safety rated and getting safety rated faster than their competitors can be a real edge. So I'm very curious, um, being part now of a tier one, whether that's, that is part of the competitive strategy for you guys. Yeah. Well, I think there's a bit of a distinction. I think there's a little bit of a distinction. Being safety rated, usually when people talk about that, they're talking about having a component or a system meets some level of certification, an ASIL rating, for example. And what that is really, at the end of the day, it's an enabler for the product. You have to achieve that rating before you've got a safety system, for example, that you can put into the marketplace. So I view that as a little bit of a nuance. That's saying we want to get to market as fast as we can. And to do that, one of our gating items is to have a safety-rated camera or a safety-rated you know, software stack, whatever the case may be. Um, but collaborating on safety, look, I mean, let's be realistic. We're not going to uh, give away a secret that's going to let one of our competitors vault ahead of us by three quarters. I mean, that's unlikely to happen. But you so want to safety share... is a competitive advantage. <laughs> no, no, no. You want to share information that's going to raise everyone's level and common understanding and common agreement of how we should be thinking about building a safe car. I mean, that's what we're trying to do. Now, everyone will go about that task in a slightly different way. This white paper we talked about earlier, like I said, it's a blueprint. It's not a recipe that you follow line by line. It's a blueprint. And so when you color within those lines, everyone will have their own specific strategy. It'll take them different amounts of time, and they'll have different partnership strategies around, etc. So there's more to it than just the blueprint. But we want to make sure everybody's starting from at least a common basic understanding of what we're talking about when we say we want a safe system. I mean, I guess just... You know, just to push that a little bit more, do you feel maybe more pressure, though, than, let's say, some of your peers, or either pressure or the motivation, you know, to 
really embrace you know the standards and the ratings and you know whether ASL whatever you know whatever they, the mm-hmm. people converge to or, uh, I don't or do you know, think you're you know, I don't know that we feel more or less I think everybody that I've spoken to um probably views it similarly in that if you go into the market you have to have a product that's the state of the art the absence of that will just expose you to a lot of you know arguments that you were not sufficiently careful in releasing your product and so the state of the art today um, requires you to have certain ratings of certain components, certain systems, etc. There's an automotive standard that doesn't fully cover everything in autonomous because autonomous is the frontier, but it covers a lot of it. And I mean, look, Aptiv, I think probably partly to your point, has been developing active, active safety systems and validating them and putting them in the market for a long time and dealing with that whole life cycle around it. So they have a certain set of standards that, I wor- that they work to. I don't think anything that we've been doing in autonomous has changed their thinking about what's suitable, what's appropriate what they need to do. It's been pretty consistent. Uh, Because again, they've been doing this for a long time. I do think that's probably somewhat unique. I think possibly there's other groups that have come in that maybe don't have as much experience in developing safety critical systems. And they say, well, where do we need to fall on this continuum of ratings, standards, safety case, argumentation, etc.? So following up on that, there's some parts of safety systems that don't fall into existing standard bodies, right? Like ASIL 26262 or like those sorts of, or ISIL 26262, those sorts of standards don't expand to cloud-based systems, to like software. You're obviously using those systems today. Right. So given that you're using those, how do you think about safety within those platforms? Yeah. Do you, That's a really good do you question. want to like build out a rating system that covers them? Yeah. Do you do something else based on ISO 26262 or ISO or something else? How do you extrapolate into that space that you're operating in, but there aren't standards that you need to conform to? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think this is another good example of an area where we see collaboration and, and, and groups working together. I mean, there's groups working to develop kind of, I wouldn't say the next ISO, but a standard set that will be more applicable to the AV use case. Thinking about, um, you know, SODIF as an example of coverage where other, you know, standards aren't sufficient. Um, There's activities... To be fair, safety of the intended function. Safety of the intended functionality, that's right. We broke down the acronyms for some of our listeners. Okay, right. Thank you for pointing that that out. That's an important one. Um, it picks up where some of these others standards leave off. Uh, there's activities, you know, some of it being led by folks at uh, places like Edge Case, um, through UL, Underwriters Laboratory. So, so there's new standards yeah. that are being formulated. I mean, a lot of this stuff takes time. It's a lot of conversation and consensus building, and all of that is typically fairly slow. So that's coming. But in the interim, you have to create your own standards and, and ultimately you operate by a standard where you think about the eventualities. You think to some extent uh, about the worst case scenario and you say, if, if X happened, can we stand behind what we've done? Do we feel like we've done all we could um, to put a safe product on the road? So you have to internally conclude whether what you're doing is sufficient. Every company will have a different internal standard. Different companies have different risk tolerances and different risk profiles, uh, which is natural. So, uh, Carl, we, we know you, you got to get out of here. We're almost at your, at your hard stop here. So um, I just wondered, uh, in, for your last uh, thing before we sort of open the conversation to, to others, um, you know, what, if you had to sort of um, 
sum up where we are right now, you know, beginning of 2020 uh, in, in the autonomy space. I know this is like also I've been putting you on the spot all evening, but, uh, you know, what, what is different now than, than, you know, where we were you know, at CES last year? Yeah, and, and, yeah that's yeah. a great question. I think for me as an industry, um, we're transitioning a bit from a f- primary focus on technology development to a primary focus on industrialization and commercialization, which is not to say we're finished with technology development. That will actually continue forever because we will continue to want to improve the capabilities of our products over time. But we understand, I've certainly understood, I think when I look at the industry, I think there's a collective understanding that it's not just about the technology. You've got to industrialize it. You've got to make it safe, which we've just been talking about. And you've got to put a product in the market that works for people. And all of that is very hard. There's a lot of lessons there to learn that we haven't learned yet. Um, And so that's where we spend a lot of our time, activity, dollars, and person power focusing on the industrialization and commercialization aspects. That was such a gracious answer because I really thought you were going to say $3.75 billion. (laughs) No? How much did did Hyundai put into? uh... It's actually a $2 billion investment. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, Well, thank you so much for coming. I know you have... Alex had to have the last word. What? What? No. Just to throw, try yeah. to bring some levity to the proceedings. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Please come back to the an after, our after hours, or what are we calling this? The Tonicast After Dark? Yeah, yeah. something yeah. like that. Something we're, like we're, that. We're workshopping the title. Yeah, we're workshopping yeah. it. No, this was great. Thank you guys for having me. I'm glad I caught you guys when you were sober. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm always sober. Yeah, he is actually always sober. <laughs> great stuff. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks.